Jesus, thank you for your patience and your grace uh, toward your disciples who again and again swing and miss, who come up short and fail in a multitude of ways. Uh, thank you that your mercies are new each morning and that your plan for us is measured in a lifetime, uh, not in moments of our weakness. Uh, so Jesus, now would you help us to see with your spirit, illumine our hearts and minds so we might see you as you are in your majestic glory as the king of the glorious kingdom so much bigger than us. We pray in all of this that our hearts would be filled with gratitude. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Kids, I don't know if your family enjoys telling stories, but ours does. And I was reminded as we spent time together of a story I heard growing up that I'm going to share with you. It's a story called Casey at Bat. I'm going to adjust it slightly to make it a little more understandable for a modern audience. Uh, Casey was a baseball player on a, a team called the Mudville Dodgers. It was a beautiful Saturday with the sun shining. Uh, the Dodgers were facing off against their rivals, and they found themselves on the bottom of the ninth inning down by two runs. That means this was their last chance to tie things up. They managed to get two runners on base, but then things started to go poorly. Uh, a batter named Billy came up, and he was of no use whatsoever, and he was quickly uh, flew out and got the first out for the inning. Uh, next up came a guy named Graham, uh, but Graham was no better. He ground out to first, and suddenly they were just one out away from pure defeat. The crowd started to grumble and even to cry out, send up Casey. Uh, Casey will for sure send those guys home. He'll hit it out of the park. And so it was to their delight that they saw emerging from the dugout the picture of a perfect baseball player, the man named Casey. Uh, Casey was tall and strong. He had muscles so big it looked like big boulders were shoved under his uniform. He had a quiet confidence to him, a glint in his eye, and he walked upright to the batter's box, and everyone knew this was their guy. Uh, Casey got in to the batter's box and got down into his stance. But instead of looking at the picture, pitcher, he just started waving to the crowd. Even as that first pitch went right by him, and they heard the umpire say, strike one. Uh, the crowd wasn't happy with that. They yelled at the umpire, uh, that wasn't a strike, you're a fraud. Come on, Casey, knock it out of the park. But Casey didn't seem concerned. He wiggled his bat a little, knocked it against his cleats, and he stepped back into the box and gave the biggest, brightest smile anyone had ever seen. Uh, right as he was doing so, the second pitch went right by him again. Everyone heard the umpire quietly saying, strike two. Now, now the crowd was really starting to get nervous. Uh, they were shouting out, come on, Casey, get serious. Casey knew that this was the moment he was there for. He held up his hand to calm the crowd. And then the look in Casey's eyes changed. That went from a quiet confidence to a look of icy and yet flaming intensity. Uh, Casey gripped the bat so strong that the knuck his knuckles turned white. He started beating the bat onto the home plate and it sounded like trees falling in a forest. 
Casey looked over at the pitcher, and then he went still. And everyone knew this was not in action. This was like a tiger ready to strike. Casey would not let this last ball go by. It seemed like an eternity until the pitcher threw that next pitch. They saw Casey spring all at once. And then a, a swing was swung, the likes of which no one had ever seen. A swing so big that the air itself cracked like thunder. Everyone was sure this was the moment they had been waiting for. Somewhere, the sun is shining. People are laughing and music is playing. Children are dancing and there's joy abounding. But it was not so on Mudville that sunny Saturday because mighty Casey struck out. That uh, poem written by Ernest Thayer was written back in 1888. Uh, it's been adapted a number of times and it's a well-known parable of heroes that fail us, uh, the, the dangers of pride and the disappointment when success turns into failure. That was a reason why that story has stuck around. Maybe you heard it, maybe you haven't, but it's because it resonates with something that's very true to our common experience. Uh, life is filled with lots and lots of letdowns and failures and moments of great disappointment. And sometimes our pride leads us into those moments and makes it all the worse. Uh, well, we come to a point in Luke's gospel where Jesus is going to uh, get a front row seat to his disciples uh, taking three big swings and hitting nothing but air. Uh, three times making huge mistakes right in front of Jesus. And yet for as much as they fail, uh, Jesus has patience. Uh, patience enough to stick with them and prepare them for the moment that's coming. Uh, the moment where he will leave them through his de uh, uh, departure from the cross. And as we study it this morning, we're going to learn a valuable lesson for each of us. That at the moments where we fail that Jesus is, is patient with us as his disciples. Uh, we'll see that in three sections following those three strikes, three whiffs from the disciples. Uh, let me tell you what they are ahead of time. First, a failure of faith. That's what we see in verse 37 through verse 43a, a failure of faith. Second, a failure of understanding. A failure of understanding. That's what we see in the second half of 43 through 45. And then last, a failure of humility. A failure of humility. That's in 46 through 50. And all of this, I hope you have one more reason for your heart to give thanks to Jesus, that he is patient with his disciples, even when they fail. Uh, let's begin with that first section. A failure of faith. Uh, the disciples are coming down from a mountaintop experience, uh, the passage right before. Uh, Jesus and three of his closest disciples were up on the mountain where the glory of Jesus was revealed. Uh, they saw Jesus not just as the man from Nazareth, but as the eternal son radiating the very glory of heaven. They heard heaven's confirmation of his identity. And for a brief moment, they got a glimpse of the glorious kingdom of God coming in power. Uh, but now that mountaintop experience is descending into a, a moment of spiritual darkness. Uh, we're told in verse 38 
as they came down from the mountain, they come into a crowd, and in that crowd is a man who is crying out. He cries out to Jesus, and he has reason to. His only son is afflicted by an evil spirit. Uh, Luke piles up descriptions of how bad it was using the lips of this poor father. Uh, the, the son is convulsing under the spirit's attacks. He never gets a moment without the spirit uh, attacking him. He's crying out. And worst of all, it says that the spirit shatters him. Uh, I don't know exactly what Luke means by that, but clearly whatever he's doing, it's doing this child lasting harm. Now that's all bad enough, but you can add insult to injury because this man tells Jesus that he came to his disciples and asked them to free his son from this demon, only the disciples were unable to do so. Now that's especially odd because just a little while ago, those same disciples had gone on a mission given the very authority of Jesus to cast out demons and preach and do miracles. And yet here, they're stumped. They are unable to help this suffering boy. Now, why could that be? Uh, well, could it be that like so many of us, once we've succeeded in a particular thing, we start to become complacent. Uh, we start to imagine that we can do things on our own strength without the need of God's help. And in our moment of pride and overconfidence, we lose access to the very power that allowed us to seed in the, succeed in the first place. Uh, I think that's likely the explanation, given the way that Jesus responds in uh, verse 41. Uh, Jesus answered him, answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Uh, Jesus' response harkens back to Deuteronomy 32. Uh, that's the song of Moses. Uh, Moses is uh, describing the way that God has worked amongst his people and what it means to be in relationship with God. And as a part of that, he describes the unfaithfulness of God's people as them being a twisted, crooked generation. Uh, if you know the story of that generation that God freed from the slavery in Egypt and brought out into the wilderness— you know that you could summarize them as people that lacked faith. Even seeing God work in mighty miracles, they found reasons to doubt and not to trust him. Well, Jesus, using that same sort of language, laments the spiritual state of the generation in which he was living. Now, it could be an indictment meant to go just broadly about everyone living in that moment. But I think especially as Luke is going to go on to focus on the disciples and the rest of this passage, the best way to understand this is that the disciples are cut from the same cloth as a whole generation that doesn't have room for trust of God in their hearts. Uh, Jesus reveals that they are not able to because they would not trust God. They, they, they cannot because they trust not. So this poor boy is left without healing. But where they fail, Jesus will succeed. He tells them to bring the son here. And, and as he does, verse 42, the demon throws one last deadly assault at the, the boy, throws him to the ground. But Jesus is too strong for the spirits even. He, he casts out that demon. 
heals the boy, gives him back to his father. And then notice how Luke describes it in verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Uh, it's as if Jesus, who has just gotten done showing his glory to those three disciples up on the mountain, now that he has descended, is going to show that same glory to the people down in the midst of this spiritual battle. The disciples fail, but Jesus succeeds. What good news that is. Now, what should we draw from this miracle account here? I think the main application isn't so much about the way Jesus heals, although that's important, as it is the failure of the disciples to do what they have already been able to do. How many of us know how easy it is to fall into the trap of trying to serve the Lord by our own strength. Uh, maybe we're not trying to be uh, uh, idle in our ministry. Maybe we have the best of intentions. Uh, maybe it's even something we've done a bunch of times in the past. And so we do this thing in the name of Jesus, only we find ourselves discouraged, ineffective, and sooner or later crashing and burning into discouragement. Why is it that happens? Well, because if we try and work by our own strength, we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of our ability to do anything. Remember, Jesus in John's gospel said, without me, you can do nothing. That's discipleship 101. So think about the ways this has played out in your own life. Uh, kids, you know the Bible tells you that you have to obey your mother and father and you need to do it from a pure heart. Have you ever had difficulty doing that? Has ever, that ever been not easy to do? Now, realize that God never intended for you to do that on your own. He wants you to ask him to help. And the good news is he will give you the strength, the grace, everything you need to be able to say, okay, mommy and daddy, I'm going to do this. Even though it doesn't seem like the thing I want to do, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust he put me in your family for a reason and I'm going to obey you. Uh, parents, have you noticed how this is a two-way street, though, that your parenting requires a good measure of reliance on the Lord and faith? You know how quick you can go from, I got this, to, I can't do this. I mean, it's not, doesn't, nothing like kids to bring you to your knees, right? Now, that's by design. Uh, God wants us again and again to be reminded that we're not sufficient for these things in and of ourselves, But where we fail, Jesus succeeds. And where we don't have enough resources, Jesus has a limitless supply of them. Uh, so when you get on your knees, not just in frustration, but in faith, trusting that if God's called you to this, that he'll provide the grace you need to be faithful. Or what about for those of us that maybe you've, been used to being able to accomplish a set of things in your life, May, maybe even in a ministry for God. Uh, you're, you're used to being able to, to witness and be effective or counsel and see change or being able to get down on the rug and serve down in children's ministry and not get tired and discouraged. Do you realize that you're even in danger of this happening? If you lose sight of the fact that God is the one that gives you the grace to serve, that you need to exercise faith to be able to do anything for him, then pretty soon you'll be in that spiritual trap 
and ready to crash and burn yourself. It happens to heroes of the faith like the disciples. Uh, it happened to Corey Ten Boone. If you read her book, The Hiding Place, uh, she and her sister Betsy had this amazing ministry in a concentration camp, inside squalor conditions, sickness and death all around them, and yet the Lord just gave them the grace to minister and to lead Bible studies and lead people to the Lord. And yet somewhere along the way, Corey describes this moment where it was, there was a small shift, but she started thinking that she could do all this on her own. She lost sight of her need for faith, to trust in the Lord. Uh, it expressed itself in not being willing to give a woman a blanket that she was convinced she and her sister needed. And she said from that moment forward, it's like a hole was put at the bottom of the bucket of her spiritual power. It all just drained away. Now, by God's grace, she noticed her error, and she repented. And the Lord granted her a new measure of faith and grace and strength to minister. But let's remember, each of us have this same need, again and again, to come back to Jesus. To know, apart from him, we can do nothing. And yet, with him, and with our faith in him, we can turn the world upside down. Uh, disciples swing and miss, strike one. They fail to exercise faith. Uh, but that leads to another failure, which we see in 43 through 45. This time it's in the arena of the mind, a failure of understanding. While the buzz is going on, and the crowd is remarking, and they're astonished at what they've seen Jesus just do, uh, Jesus huddles up the disciples, the second half of verse 43, and has a very stark teaching for them. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knew exactly the strengths and weaknesses of his disciples. It was no surprise to him that Peter was bold and brash. It was no surprise to him uh, that John would be so loving and be known one day as the disciple of love. Uh, he knew their strengths, he knew their weaknesses, and he knew what was coming, uh, that what lay ahead was very likely to lead them into a series of missteps. Uh, that's because they were people of their times. Uh, most of us are people of our times. We absorb the assumptions of the time and place in which we live, and it requires a lot of effort to even notice them much less to be countercultural about them. Well, the disciples, in the day they were living, they were, were good, faithful Jews looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But the Messiah they were looking forward to was one that was glorious and victorious, a one that would conquer all of God's enemies and lead a parade right down the middle of Jerusalem. Uh, that meant there was little room in the heart of your average Jew living back then for a suffering Messiah, uh, one that would be betrayed, crucified, and appear to be defeated. Jesus knew that the disciples didn't yet know that. And, and in fact, no matter how clearly he's going to say it, they're going to be unable to comprehend it. This is the second time Jesus has spoken openly about what's most central to his mission in this world, that thing we call the cross. Uh, this time, he, he comes at it from a slightly different angle. He speaks uh, about his coming betrayal. He will be handed over. 
given over to the hands of men. Uh, someone amongst that group of disciples is going to be the instrument for Jesus' enemies finally getting a hold of him. And for a moment, appearing that they are victorious over the Son sent from heaven. Now, Jesus says this clearly, and this will be the, uh, a, a theme running forward in Ju uh, Luke's gospel of him preparing his disciples for this coming crucifixion in Jerusalem. But in verse 45, we're told they did not understand this saying. Now, it's easy to be down on them for this. Uh, later in Luke's gospel, Jesus himself will rebuke them for not understanding what he's saying. Uh, partly because he said it directly, but also partly because the first two-thirds of your Bible, the Old Testament, was all preparing people for this coming mission of Jesus. But before we are too hard on the disciples, uh, notice that Luke goes out of his way to say that it was concealed from them. Now that word concealed implies something more than they're just being slow. Uh, there is as if some sort of a spiritual veil put over their eyes. Some barrier keeping them from being able to perceive with eyes of faith what Jesus is saying. Uh, they could not understand, but they, they did not understand not just because of their lack of faith. It was also because God needed to do something else. That work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate their hearts and their minds, to turn the spiritual lights on, and allow them to see and perceive. Uh, that we'll see that happen at the end of the Gospel of Luke. But in, for now, for now they're perplexed. And I love the way it says it there. They're afraid to ask Jesus about any of this that he was saying. Uh, I guess they figured if they kept quiet, they at least wouldn't make fools of themselves. Uh, little they know that Jesus, of course, can read their minds. So their foolishness is known to him the whole time. Now let's recognize how easy it is for us to be fuzzy on the cross. Uh, the disciples at this point did not understand exactly what Jesus was speaking about. One day they would. But we have even less excuse than they do. I mean, we live on the other side of history from the cross. It's been old news for 2,000 years. We've had the completed Bible given to us to explain what it means and yet, in my experience, uh, even many Christians that have grown up, spent their whole lives in church, can be very fuzzy when it comes to their understanding of the cross and the central mission of what Jesus came to earth to do. Um, it's been said that Christians in America, the last several decades, have been losing their religion. If you look at statistics, there's a pretty compelling case to be made that lots and lots of people uh, proportionally, that used to find their way to church and identify as Christians are no longer doing so. That, that's a real trend. There's another trend that gets less press, though. The people that go to church, they understand less about the ABCs of the faith. Less and less Christians are able to tell you why Jesus came to earth, why he had to be handed over to his enemies, why he had to suffer and die and rise. Now, if you're here this morning and there is a bit of fuzziness in your ability to understand all that or even to explain it to someone else, remember, Jesus is so, so patient with his disciples when they fail. Uh, he doesn't send his disciples away for their lack of understanding here. And in fact, he's going to spend a whole nother year with them, making sure that the, all the seeds are sown 
so that one day when they're properly watered and the time comes, they'll be able to understand his mission and how to preach in the name of Christ. Now, it's one of the things that we as a church try to help each other to do, and that's to get to a point of fluency. When we talk about the ABCs of Christianity, that is the gospel of Jesus. Each sermon, one way or the other, I try to work in this message. Usually it only takes me two minutes or so. Now, I do that because I don't know if there's an unbeliever here amongst us. And I don't want to stand up before God one day and not be able to say that I presented the gospel by which men are to be saved when I had the opportunity to do so. But I also do that for another reason. I'm hoping by repetition that this will sink into our collective years. Uh, the very ABCs of Christianity and the gospel itself would be something that you would increasingly, day by day, be better equipped to be able to share for yourself. So when you hear me start launching into a gospel presentation like the one I'm about to give, don't tune out. Use it as a quick refresher. Maybe even if you think about it, pray for the, any unbelievers that might be uh, present amongst us. Uh, but remember, you need to be crystal clear on the gospel and the cross as well. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you know that you're not someone that is following Jesus on the road to discipleship, or maybe you're not even sure what a Christian really is. Allow me to just explain what we Christians believe in just a, a short explanation. Uh, we believe that all humans have become en enemies of God, uh, that there are the first humans rebelled against God, and each of us since then have lived up to our forebears doing the same thing. And the Bible calls that sin. Uh, we believe our sins before God are an offensive, evil thing. And that since God is just and holy and perfectly of both those things, that our sins deserve his punishment. But the good news is that God of justice and mercy is also a God of love and grace which is why he sent his son, Jesus, to save sinners of all types. Uh, Jesus is God in human flesh, uh, a perfect man who never sinned himself. He gave his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute. Uh, that's what we believe the cross was all about. Uh, Jesus dying at the hands of cruel soldiers so he could pay the penalty our sins deserve. Uh, we believe Jesus did that so perfectly that the very wrath of God, his punishment towards sinners, was turned away. And if we come to God through Jesus Christ, we can uh, know for sure that we will never be punished for our sins. And the good news gets even better because Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back to life. God raised him from the dead. And in doing so, Jesus can now offer us a new life. A life with God that starts now and goes on forever. All he asks of us is to repent of our sins and to trust him by faith, to, to come to God through Jesus. We believe anyone who does that, no matter how different they may be than us or how numerous their sins might be, we believe they are fully forgiven just as we are. And this morning, we invite you to come experience the same thing we've experienced. To have a reason to be thankful forever because you are forgiven through the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus knows that his disciples aren't ready to absorb all that yet. 
Uh, and if you aren't ready to absorb all that yet, just know that Jesus is patient with you this morning as well. Try to learn one thing at a time, but little by little, make sure that the cross goes from fuzzy to clear. Because what you see at the cross is the difference of forever with God and forever away from him. Uh, the disciples failed in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Swing and a miss, strike two. Uh, but they got one more chance coming up. Uh, one more opportunity to fail and experience the grace of Jesus. That's what we see in verses 47 through 50. This time it's a failure of humility. Failure of humility. Uh, there are two small accounts here. One pointing inward, one pointing outward, both with the same failure. Uh, the disciples are prideful when they should be humble. On the one pointing inward, that pride is seen in their mindset of competition. Uh, we're told in verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, you can't hear the irony in Luke's pen as he writes this, but I, let me assure you it's there. Uh, Jesus has just gotten done explaining how he is going to be humiliated, betrayed, killed on a cross, and here are his crack group of disciples arguing about who's the best among them. Um, the, the, it would be the equivalent of a, a team of T-ballers, five-year-olds, arguing about who could hit the ball the farthest off the tee. It's like, okay, even if you proved it, so what? Who's the greatest disciple when greatness isn't measured that way in the kingdom of God? It's not measured by our accomplishments and by our comparisons to each other. No, greatness in the kingdom of God instead is given by this man, Jesus. So Jesus teaches them a lesson. He, he does an object lesson. He brings a, a child up stands him next to him. Then he says to him, uh, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Kids, do you find it difficult sometimes just to be a kid? Do you feel like people don't take you seriously, or people talk about things and you don't understand what they're saying and you wish they would just talk about something you understood? See some thumbs up and th thumbs down over there. Yeah, we've all been there. Don't worry. Um, as hard as it is to be a kid right now, it was way harder to be a kid 2,000 years ago. Uh, back then, kids were considered nobodies in society. Uh, so much so that we actually have writings from rabbis. They're telling uh, young men that if they want to be spiritually mature, then they shouldn't waste their time talking to children. Uh, children were a, um, a nuisance. They couldn't work. They certainly didn't have any wisdom. So people did their best to avoid them altogether. So when Jesus took this child up and brought him next to him and said to his disciples, the way you receive this child is the way you receive me, it would have been astonishing. Uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson that they would never forget, that they are not above associating with anyone. There's no one in society too low. There's no sinner too far from God. If they will, will not receive the least among them, then they haven't really understood what it is to receive Jesus himself. Jesus explains, uh, 
verse 48, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. See, it's an entirely different way of measuring greatness. Uh, greatness isn't measured against the yardstick of your fellow Christian or even your neighbor next door. Uh, greatness is not something achieved, it's something given. Something you get by relationship with Jesus. And that means at the foot of the cross, none of us stand proud. All of us are humbled. That's the inward expression of their pride. There's a second one, though. It's their outward expression of pride. That's what we see in verse 49 and 50. Uh, John answered, Master, uh, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Uh, this time, the expression of pride comes out not in comparison, but of competition. Uh, the disciples see someone who ironically is doing the very thing that they are failing to do just a second ago, casting out demons. Only there's a problem. Uh, this guy who's casting out demons is freelance. Uh, he hasn't gotten the franchise agreement the way they have, so they file a cease and desist letter. But Jesus hears about it and he says, what are you guys doing? There are enemies aplenty around. You don't need any more enemies. Take the allies where you see them. Uh, get out of your mindset of competition and get into a mindset of cooperation because the kingdom of God is much bigger than the corner of it that you inhabit. I wish I could say that Christians never make either of these mistakes the day in which we live, uh, that we never fall into the mindset of comparison, or competition, that we're always humble, always put the kingdom of God and others first. And yet, you don't have to live very long as a Christian to realize that both of these mindsets are alive and well amongst us. Uh, think about what happens when we get into that comparison mindset. We start having thoughts even around Thanksgiving. Why did they have 12 grandkids come to Thanksgiving? I only had four. Why did God do it that way? Uh, why is it that they are so quick on their feet and able to answer questions and evangelize so well and, and my tongue feels like it's thick and I'm not able to say anything? I wish I had that gift. Wow, I might have messed up this week, but at least I didn't mess up like that guy did. I actually feel a little better seeing that happen. Uh, we're experts at the comparison thing, aren't we? Uh, yeah, if we understood that we're all on the same team, we've all been humbled by the grace that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross, and that greatness is not something achieved, but something that's given, then there's no room for pride and boasting. Instead, we rejoice when others receive blessings. Instead, we want the best for our fellow brothers and sisters, even when it's a blessing that we so badly have prayed for and wanted. Stop measuring greatness according to the yardstick of your fellow Christian or even your neighbor or co-worker or relative, realize that true greatness comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And if you have that, you can be content with whatever else he gives you. Uh, realize the same thing happens to us in the competition mindset. Even in Christian ministries, doing things in the name of Jesus, people find ways to get into turf wars. Uh, we pitch 
Baptists versus Presbyterians, uh, Reformed versus Armenian, expository preachers versus topical preachers. Which tribe are you a part of? We look down on people that, before the Lord, make decisions about the way they are going to worship, do ministry, evangelize, send missionaries. Well, it's not the church planting strategy we would have chosen, so somehow or the other, we kind of wish they wouldn't get the resources to do what they're doing and we would get them instead. I, I once was a, a part of a, of a seminary um, that had some students that really fell into this trap. Uh, they became really strongly convinced that some of the doctrines that the seminary taught were right and good. But they lost sight of the fact that the kingdom of God's bigger than this one small tradition of how to understand an important but not the most important part of Scripture. So they took it upon themselves to go to the local church down the road, didn't believe the same way they did on this topic, and to protest in the middle of a service, calling them all heretics, calling them to repent. And now it got out in the papers. It got so bad that the seminary actually had to um, exercise some discipline on the students and issue a public apology to that church. Now, I wish I could say that's the only time this sort of thing has happened, but down through the ages, we Christians are experts at tribalism and forming into little spiritual cliques. Uh, the elders have been reading a book about the Great Awakening. It's amazing. While the Spirit of God was flowing through the churches, there was no time for this sort of tribalism and us against them. Uh, but the second that the revivals gave way and the Spirit of God was less evident in the way he worked, uh, they found ways to have just as bitter rivalries as other times in church history. Uh, brothers and sisters, let's never let that be the case for us. We should rejoice over the fact that Christ is preached, that the gospel is proclaimed, that people are brought into the kingdom of God, even if it's in churches that are very different than ours, through missionaries that weren't sent out by our church, or even by ministries that do things differently than we would choose to do them. Uh, I once had the opportunity to worship with a group of Christians that uh, their Sunday gatherings are very different than the way we do them here. Uh, this particular church uh, they would not have a designated preacher for the given morning. Uh, in fact, there would be an opportunity for anyone that felt the leading of the Holy Spirit to stand up and give an exhortation or a teaching from Scripture. And when I was there, the, one of those exhortations went on for 20 minutes. Now, there's a reason I don't do that here. Uh, it's not the way I think is the wisest way to run our church. Um, and yet, praise God for the people that came to Christ in that church. Praise God for Jesus being lifted up in that church. And my guess is there's a thing or two that that church has, right, that maybe I'm blinded to, and one day Jesus will sort me out on when I meet him. Uh, let's, with humility, realize how easy it is to get into this us versus them mindset, even with other Christians. Uh, we should give thanks for East 91st Street Church down the street, for all the College Park churches that have been planted around uh, the city of Indianapolis. Uh, we should give thanks for house churches, and other fellowships, anywhere where the gospel is preached, we should find room in our hearts to give thanks. Now, brothers and sisters, if you failed at this or any of these other points, remember Jesus has so much patience for his disciples when they fail. 
Uh, these are just three snapshots in a series of dozens that we, Luke could have chosen from um, where Jesus patiently endures the failures of his disciples and brings them along on the journey he always intended for them to bring them to the point where they would see with their spiritual eyes and be ready to serve him with his help. Realize Jesus is the same today as he was back then. He has patience for his disciples when they fail. Uh, maybe you're carrying around a burden of guilt for some way that you've intended the best, even tried to do something and it just hasn't worked out. Uh, would you remember that Jesus isn't scolding you, wishing he could cast you off of his team? No, he knows exactly your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. And he knows what grace you need to serve him over the long haul. In a second, we're going to sing a song. I think it's fitting to sing the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I also think it's especially fitting to sing after preaching this passage. Because all of us, one way or the other, have failed to live up to the standard of what a disciple of Jesus ought to be. And yet, Jesus is patient with us and gives us the grace we need to continue serving him. The song we're going to sing is titled, Jesus, Thank You. Listen to a few of the words from it. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being patient with your disciples when they fail. Let's pray. Jesus, we humbly before you acknowledge how easy it is for us to serve you, even with the best of intentions, but to do so out of our own strength, losing sight of our every moment reliance on you, the, the need for our trust to be the channel through which your Holy Spirit gives us the spiritual strength to see past ourselves and to serve the kingdom with joy and gladness. Uh, Jesus, would you help us, would you even humble us this morning to rejoice over the victories other Christians are experiencing, even this very moment. Uh, help us to not try and measure ourselves by the yardstick of fellow Christians, or even the world around us, to be totally content in the greatness we have in our relationship with you. And Jesus, most of all, would you help us to do all these things by giving us crystal clarity to what you accomplished on the cross? Uh, would you remind us that everything we have is a gift, and that gift was purchased in your blood? So Jesus, now fill our hearts with thanksgiving and gratitude as we, as we sing, Jesus, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.